So uh, if you're following along as she was uh, reading our passage today, you might uh, be tempted to say, oh, Cody, what in the world are we doing? Why this passage? Why tabernacle and Ark of the Covenant? And wasn't that just an Indiana Jones thing? Is that a real thing? Poles, the poles that carried it, the veil, the screen it says here in the ESV, the bread, the lamp, the mercy seat, the altar. What are all of these things? This is, this is why I don't read the Old Testament, you might be thinking. This is why I don't do it. I just don't do it because I can't understand it. I have no idea what's going on. And whenever I look at this passage, I'm just like, this is just, it's, it's just too hard. It's just too hard. And um, if you've been with us a while, I know we have several guests. And I'm thrilled that you're here with us. Uh, we're going through uh, the, the book of Exodus. Uh, we're pretty much done since this is the last chapter and we just read the last verse. Uh, but uh, for all you type A'ers, unfortunately... Next week during Palm Sunday, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 34 where God reveals his glory to Moses and declares his name. And I know that drives some of you crazy that uh, we didn't go chronologically through it, but that will be our final one and you're just going to have to deal with it. But uh, I tell you what, I tell you what, what we've seen through the book of Exodus, which we've called this series The Gospel According to Exodus, is that the Israelite people. Their story of getting out of slavery, surviving the plagues of God, God choosing them and pulling them out of of their slavery, uh, vanquishing their enemies, saying that you are in slavery no more, that your taskmasters, they are no more, that they are going to be done with forever and ever, so much so that you're going to go to the Red Sea and you're going to be like, God, what are you doing? This seems impossible. And he says, nothing is impossible with God. He parts the Red Sea for them. He, and then he closes the Red Sea on the people that enslaved them for a very, very long time. And what we see is that this is what it means for us to be saved. See, you and I, whenever we come to faith, if you read the book of Romans, it's very clear. Paul knows and understands exactly what the book of Exodus is teaching. Because it it says in the book of Romans that you are either a slave to your sin. You're either a slave to your sin, which means you're addicted to it. There's something deep inside your heart that you just can't get away from it. It's something that controls you. You don't wake up uh, singing praises to God. You don't, uh, you don't uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't love my neighbor as myself. There's something broken, something deeply broken within us. And the Bible says that uh, we're, sla- we're slaves to sin. But... Through the salvation of the Lord, through the salvation of the Lord, we can now be slaves to righteousness. We can now belong heart, soul, mind, and strength to God and God himself. Because the whole purpose of Exodus, if you've followed along with us in our Bible reading plan as a church, you've noticed that the last 15 chapters are all just preparing for this as the climax, uh, the, the inauguration of the tabernacle. And for 15 painstaking chapters, you've heard about the the needlework that's going into uh, making the the beautiful artistic cherubim and palm branches and all of these things in four-inch thick curtains that are supposed to be uh, cover over the tabernacle, uh, overlays with uh, what 
what this passage calls as screens. And then there's supposed to be a very large court that goes around that and another court around that for the nations. And you're just like, what is going on? But this is the point that it's trying to teach us. That our story of salvation begins in slavery to our sin, but it ends with worship. It ends with the presence of God coming down. Coming down and transforming us and changing us. And this is why Exodus 40 is the climax. Because what we see here right at the end of it is the Shekinah glory coming down and resting and dwelling with the people of God in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle. And so here's the thing. This is the point of all that we've been studying. Is that you are still, listen, look at me. You are still in slavery, if you have not come all the way out of slavery to your sin into worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Still, still in slavery until you get to worship. That's what Exodus is trying to teach us. It's trying to teach us because what is worship according to the Bible's definition? Worship is just something that you find worthy of your time, energy, and affection. Something that you will delight in. That's what worship is. What do you find as worthy in your life to give you atten- to, to give your heart's attention to? What is worthy? What is worthy? Whatever you find as most worthy of your time, energy, and delight, and affection, that's what you're worshiping. That's what you and I are worshiping. You see, we, we can't help. We're, we're worshipful creatures. We're made in the image of God to worship, to enjoy, to delight in Him. And whenever things broke in the garden, that that sense of finding something to worship didn't go away. It didn't. You and I still worship every single day something, something. And it's always found in what we deem as worthy in a particular time and place. So for college students, what do you find worthy? What's worthy of your time, energy, and affection? Is it, uh, is it your major? Is your major, you feel, you feel a little superior because uh, you got this certain major that you, you think is going to be, um, a, you know, higher earning potential or be able to do more humanitarian good through this major. Or maybe it's, the, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just your identity of being a straight-A straight student or uh, on a certain team or achieving a certain level. Or maybe it's the fact that you're a college student and you're just like, you know what, uh, I'm not like those other college students that are kind of lazy. I'm grinding. I'm grinding through college. I, I have a job, and I, I, you know, I, I, go to work, I go to work, I go to school, I study, I collapse, and then I try to do the Jesus thing here, you know, here and there. And so maybe you find uh, your worth in that. For, for us as adults that are kind of outside of the college world, maybe um, we find worth in our identity, in our job. Maybe we find it in our family. You being a provider, a good provider, maybe it's in something that you enjoy or delight in doing. Really, you're living for the weekend. You're living for your hobbies. Maybe it's just you being a mom that are raising kids that aren't weirdos or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. But what are, what are you finding and placing your worth in? Because there is something every single day that we say, I'm, that is worthy, and I'm giving my heart's attention to it. And the Bible defines that as worship. The Bible defines that as worship. And that's what we need to grasp from Exodus. This is ending. The whole climax of the book is ending with us worshiping the one true God. Because what we see, because what we see 
is we're still a slave until all of our energy, all of our affection, all of our desires are found in treasuring Christ and treasuring Him alone. That's the point. That's the point of what we're trying to accomplish. So why even preach an entire sermon on the tabernacle of doing all the things that the Lord commanded. Why, why even try to do this? So this is one of those religious words that I kind of talked about last week with glory that we don't understand, that is too hard for us to grasp. And so uh, we, why don't we just blow by it? Why even talk about it? Because this is my sense. My sense is that if we don't get what the tabernacle is for, we don't see Jesus as clearly as we should. So let's dig in. Let's dig in. This is not religious mumbo-jumbo. The tabernacle is not just a place of worship. Let's discover why we need a tabernacle, how does the tabernacle work, and what does the tabernacle point to. Okay? Three things that we're going to do, and uh, then we'll get out of here. All right? Why do we need a tabernacle? How does the tabernacle work according to the Bible? And what does this tabernacle point us ultimately to? All right, so last week we talked about the glory of God, the kavod, the kavod of God, the weight, the weight of God, the, the thing that really, truly matters. And two things that we saw last week, if you weren't here, uh, we can recall it right now. Number one is the, the glory of God is the number one thing that we were made for. This is what you were made for. Everyone in this room, uh, uh, the sense of things that you deem as worthy in your life, that gives you a little shot of adrenaline, that gives you a sense of happiness, uh, your relationships that you have, the fullness of all those things, all the they're, they're lesser goods compared to the glory of God. Like, this is what we're ultimately made for. Our relationships are, uh, are a smaller shadow of the ultimate relationship that we were supposed to have, which is to bask face-to-face with our God, our Maker, our King, our Lord, our Savior, our friend. All other human relationships here on earth were made for that. Just a small picture, all the delight that we have and experience in them are just a small shadow of what we're ultimately made for right here. And listen, it sounds like I'm belittling this. No, I'm just making much of Christ. I'm making much of God, that the glory of God is something that, it, that, that it should enthrone our hearts and cause us to draw near to him and delight and enjoy him. That's why I said right here at the beginning, our hope here at Redeemer, our hope here is that you enjoy God. Why? Because you're made for his glory. This is important. This is profound. This is life-shaking. This is life-altering. You're made for the glory of God. And here's the number two thing that we see here in the tabernacle and for the glory of God. We see this, that we can't have it. The glory of God, we can't behold it. Remember what Moses says here in Exodus? Lord, show me your glory. Lord, will you show me your glory? (laughs) How does God respond? Can't do that. Uh, Can't do that you would die instantly. In fact, faster than instantly you would die. Why? Because God is so holy. I've heard it said this way, that us coming to a holy God would be like a little piece of tissue paper floating through space and going straight into the core of the sun. Just a 
just disappear immediately. And that, that doesn't even do it justice. Because listen, God is holy, holy, holy. That's what the Bible says. He is the uttermost of holy otherness. He is completely different than you and I. Which means nothing could ever taint his presence. Nothing could ever spoil his holiness. He will never, ever have anything in his presence that's not perfectly pristine. Now, so what hope do we have? <laughs> that's why whenever Moses says, God, show me your glory, he says, are you kidding me? You'll die. You'll, you'll more than die. You'll die, die. Which is actually the exact same thing that God said to Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, the day that you eat of the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. He repeated it twice in Hebrew. He says, you will die and die. All right? And utterly, just completely, totally dead. No shot of being with this holy God. No shot. But this is the beautiful thing that we understand from the book of Exodus. Exodus 25, the passage that starts the interworkings of the tabernacle, you know what it says? He says, make and set my tabernacle among you. Make me a sanctuary so that I can dwell in your midst. Make me a sanctuary so that you can be protected from the glory of God. But so that I know that this is what you're made for, and I want you to still be in my presence. So I'm going to protect you and be with you so that my glory can be in your presence. And this is all throughout the Bible. Leviticus 26 Verses 11 and 12 said the exact same thing. I will set my tabernacle among you, declares the Lord, and my sh sh soul shall not abhor you. That's a bad word. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to be in your presence so that I just won't break out against you and kill you. I think, man, this Old Testament God seems so mean. He seemed, no, he's holy. He's different. He's pure. And he will not allow anything to corrupt his purity. Ezekiel 37, which is a beautiful picture of the gospel, says this, My dwelling place will be with my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You know, that is one of the most common phrases in the Bible. The most common phrase, I will be their God. I have a people on earth. They are mine, and I will dwell, in the, I will dwell with them. The, I will be where they are. I delight in them. How, how? How? Let's look. Let's look in this. This is the point of the tabernacle. The point of the tabernacle is God trying to communicate with you and with me that I want I want you to live for what you're made for, which is my glory. But I want to do it in a way that you can, that you can take. I want to do it in a grace-filled way so that my wrath against your disobedience, my wrath against your displeasure of God, my wrath against you and I constantly second-guessing God at every single turn. Is he good? Coronavirus, really, God? Come on. And he doesn't kill us. He doesn't kill us from saying something so blasphemous like that. That's what the tabernacle is actually for. Why do we need the tabernacle? So that God can safely dwell among us. So that God can protect, can protect us from himself. 
he's, what he's doing is he's making a pathway through the barriers. He's making a pathway through the barriers to God himself. Exodus 25, I, I read this earlier. It says, make me a sanctuary exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, all of its furniture, furniture, all of its lamps, all of, all of its fine twine linen, you shall make according to the word of the Lord. He's saying, you cannot, you cannot operate with me in relationship with me according to your own terms. We're different. We're different. You can only come to me in the way that I have provided. That's it. That's what God is saying here. That's what God is saying. And so look at how he sets everything up. In our passage in Exodus chapter 40, we see that uh, Moses had to set everything up from the innermost sanctum of the tabernacle, and he had to move out. So he built everything from the inside out so that God's glory can dwell in our midst. The first thing that you see is that he sets up the Ark of the Covenant. He sets up the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, and then he sets a screen, which is a barrier, right? Or uh, you and I, probably the vernacular that we're used to is there was a veil there. There was a veil there. And then after he kind of courted off the holy place, he laid the bread of the presence. He laid uh, the lampstands, the golden lampstands. He, he laid the altars where they needed to be. And then he placed washings, basins for washings. Whenever the priest would go in and out, they had to wash and cleanse themselves. Why? Because God is holy. Right? He's utterly different, and this is one of the things that we had to do. And this is the Shekinah glory that fell at the end of this chapter. This is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. This is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. And it said it sat right above the mercy seat. It dwelled right above there to where the priests, whenever they'd go in, they'd have to shield their eyes. They couldn't look on them. And they could only go in once a year. And during the second temporal era, and this is just a fun little fact, you know what happened? Uh, A couple of priests died in there. They didn't do things according to what, uh, and so, you know, uh, it became during the second temple era, which is after the exile of Babylon, they started tying ropes around the priest so that whenever he died in the presence of God, they could just drag him out so the next person wouldn't have to go in. Then they have two people dead. This, was the, this is how holy our God is. You can't, do, you can't come to him in any other way other than the way that he has provided. So why do we need a tabernacle? Because we need to be protected from the glory and presence of God. This is God's grace. God is making a way for his presence to dwell with us, but he is not a safe God. He is good, but he is not safe. So that's point one. We need to be protected. Why do we need a tabernacle? Because the glory of God is not to be trifled with. Number two, how does the tabernacle work? So how does this work? How do we need to uh, try to interact with it? Because what we saw here was barrier after barrier after barrier, right? You had to go in and you had to wash. You you had to uh, do everything according to the liturgy that God laid out. You only had to go in a certain time. Only one person could do so, and he could only do so after several, several washings before he entered into. And this is is what's crazy, as Psalm uh, 16, verse 11 says, again, I can't press this home um, enough for us as a congregation. 
We're made for this. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And the message of the tabernacle is there is a way back into the presence of God. But, but, you have to go through all the barriers, curtain after curtain, wash after wash, only the way that God has provided. That's the only way. And here's the thing. You might be thinking, Cody, this is so Old Testament religion stuff. I don't even know how it applies to us. I don't even know how it applies to my own walk with Jesus. I'm walking with Jesus in New Covenant. So what? help me out. Well, let me, let me say this. These barriers are still up today. They, they reveal themselves in different ways. But here's the principle. The closer you get to the holy presence of God, the more you realize that you are different from him and that you can become undone very quickly. Very quickly. All right? I, I think if you're a lot like me, whenever I first came to Christ and I, I knew and understood that God loved me and he placed his love on me, that was a very attractive thing. It was a very attractive thing to me. I was like, oh, God loves me? Well, I love me. <laughs> um, so that's great. That's great. Um, God seems like a great God. He seems like he's really, really good. I think I'm good. I think I might be worth saving. That's a little blasphemous now. But whenever you first kind of are dabbling into the presence of God and being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, these are one of the, th- these are one of the things that you kind of process through and work through. But I've talked to so many people, and it's been the, um, the same in my own life my own spiritual journey, that the closer I understand this God of the Bible, the further I feel. It's like, oh, he's, he's not super pumped about me. He's not enamored with me in how I am trying to operate and work. And he, he knows and sees my brokenness, and I am recognizing the, the vast difference in who I am in his holiness in wow that's actually a little scary and this is polemical but I'm going to say this what has happened in our western kind of bible belt mentality of us in local congregations which I have perpetuated and I'm, I'm trying to repent from is whenever you realize the danger of getting close to this holy God, of recognizing that, oh, he's untamable. He can, he can tell me to go anywhere, even with shall falls. <laughs> he can tell me uh, to commit my life anywhere. There is nothing that's not on the table with this holy God, especially when you're saved by grace. That means that all things are on the table. There's a blank check on the table, and the closer you get, the more you feel that calling The more you feel that calling, God, you can tell me to go anywhere you want me to go and do anything you want me to do. What we've done in church is we made ourselves comfortable with keeping God at a safe distance. Stay here. I don't want to go any further. See, what we do is we set up barriers. We set up screens. We set up veils. And we say, you know what? This is close enough. 
I'm okay with the idea of God being over there and Him being great, but I don't want to get too close. I don't want to experience how untamable He is. I don't want to experience Him asking me, put the blank check on the table, Cody. Put the blank check there. I will be the one to fill this in. And so what we've done, what we've done is we've created our own barriers, haven't we? To where we've said, you know what? We don't have to bring up our kids in the instruction the discipline of the Lord. Just send them to church. Send them to kids' church. Let them, let them do their thing. And then just um, have, the, have the coloring sheets throughout the week. Forget about it as parents. And then maybe next week we'll try again and do this, do this a little bit better, okay? Again, this is polemical. But I, I, I want us to embrace what? What is God calling us to? He's calling us to himself. And he is holy. He is utterly different than us. Which means the closer we get to him, the more we need to be recognizing that our lives are coming undone. Are coming undone. The, the, the desires of our heart uh, should, should fade away the closer we get to the presence of God. Because the closer we get to the presence of God, the more his glory is going to shine on us. And the more his glory shines on us, the thing that we were made for is going to transform and change us. This is what the Holy Spirit of God, Holy, do you hear the Spirit of God saying, come, come closer, come further in, come deeper with me. We set up these barriers too. And my hope for Redeemer Church is we can break through, we can cut through these barriers and just say, no, God, I'm going all the way in. I'm going all the way in. How does the tabernacle work? It provides the way. It provides the way in. It does. Why are there these barriers? Let's, let's talk about that real fast. Let's give a little um, theology lesson. Genesis 2 right? Genesis 2, were there any barriers between man and God? Not at all. Not at all. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. They enjoyed him. They delighted in him. The thing that we say as a church that we want to get to, uh, they experienced in full. They were walking with God, enjoying God, delighting in God, seeing him, uh, seeing him face to face, walking with him in the cool of the day. And then in Genesis 3, everything broke. And the barrier came up. Do you remember what the barrier was? In Genesis chapter 3, the very last verse, it says this, that God drove out the man from the garden, and he placed a cherubim. He placed an angel with a flaming sword swaying back and forth. You know what that means? The barrier between us and God is someone is going to have to go under that sword. Someone's going to have to get back the presence of God. We're going to have to go under the sword that the angel, that the angel is protecting us from in the presence of God. That's what Sally Lloyd. That's how Sally Lloyd Jones puts it. And the only way back to the presence of God is to go under the sword. Someone will have to. And what the tabernacle is helping communicate to us is that God is saying. I'm making the way back, back to where my presence was, back to the garden. The tabernacle is saying there is a way. It's through the barriers, but there is a way. That's what the tabernacle is showing us. The presence of God can be obtained. I will heal the brokenness from the Garden of Eden. I will prepare the way back into my presence so that I can be with you, so that you will be my people and I will be your God. This 
is what the tabernacle is teaching us. How does it work? How does it work? It shows us the way. It shows us the way to our holy God so that we can experience his glory once again. Do you know what this tells us? This whole idea of the tabernacle. Do you think really uh, the, the end of this story is God dwells, God's presence dwells in a tent? Because literally that's all it is. It's just a tent with curtains. You think this is the, the ultimate forever and ever and ever as the people of God wander around, God's presence is going to dwell in a tent. No, they knew it. And you and I need to recognize it, that this tabernacle was pointing to something else. It was pointing to something truer and better. David knew it. Remember what David said? He said, this this little tent, this tabernacle, this tent of meeting that we go in, we do all our religious services once a year to be made right with God. That's not right. Let's build a temple. Let's build a temple that is a picture of your uh, your glory and your presence. Your people being in your presence. So let's do that. And you know what? This is what's funny. You know how God responds? I didn't ask you to build me a temple. Hey, this is pointing to something, but it's not this temple. But go ahead. Go ahead and build your temple. Go ahead. I don't care. I've been dwelling in this tent for a while. My presence is still going to be with you. I'll move my presence to the temple as long as you do. Um, you, You build the Holy of Holies exactly to the parameters that I've told you to. So that's what they do. And then it gets destroyed. Um, shocker, right? I didn't tell you to do this. It gets destroyed. <laughs> and then uh, they build another one. They build another one. But this is what's um, really, really interesting that we need to recognize. Before they built another one and they were carried off into exile, as they see the ashes of uh, the, the first temple being destroyed, uh, the the prophet Ezekiel prophesied about there will be a day where there will be a newer and better temple, where the presence of God, which is a picture of the tabernacle, will actually dwell in truth and in life. And this is something that we need to recognize. And this is the cool part. This is in Ezekiel chapter 47 and 48. And it talks about this temple. (laughs) This temple is going to have living water coming down from the Holy of Holies. And it's going to be a wellspring of life to the nations. And from this temple, there will be not just a group of priests, but there will be a kingdom of priests. That everyone that belongs to this temple will be priests themselves. And you know where, (laughs) this is beautiful. It says that, that wellspring of water, you know where it goes down to? Um, It goes down to the Dead Sea. Dead Sea. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. It's just a ton of salt. It's right next to Jerusalem. And you know what it says in Ezekiel? It says, whenever that water that comes from the living temple flows into the Red Sea or Dead Sea, the Dead Sea will come alive. And all the nations will be grafted in. All the nations will be grafted in, and they will be a kingdom of priests, and they who were dead will be alive forevermore. Which is why, why bring that up? Because whenever they made the second temple, you're like, oh, let's try this again. The old men wept. They wept. And they didn't weep for joy. The old men wept whenever they saw the second temple because they said, this isn't the thing that Ezekiel prophesied. This isn't great. There's no no river that's going through this. Where's that temple? 
Where is that temple? Where, where is the wellspring of life that will water the nations? Where is the living water that will make dead, deadness come alive? Where is that? Where is that? Which brings me to the last point. Who is this tabernacle? Who is this temple pointing to? We read in our call to worship, John chapter 1, verse 14, and it says this. I'm going to read it again. It said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word in Greek right there is the word tabernacle. The exact same work in the, in the Greek Old Testament for tabernacle. Why do you think John did that? He was trying to invoke, wake up, wake up. This Jesus, he might be. He might be the thing that the temple's actually pointing to. It says Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. You know what that means? We will never get what Jesus, what Jesus came to accomplish if we don't get what this means. It means that Jesus was not just God. He, of course he was. He, he was saying so much more than that. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I'm not just God. I'm not just the glory of God. I'm the way. I'm the way. I'm the one that's going to provide the way through the barriers. I am the truth. I, the, the, the tabernacle, the temple was all just pointing to me. It was just pointing to me. He was saying, I am the way. I'm the true sacrifice. I'm the true priest. I'm the true altar. I'm the true bread. I'm the true lamp. I'm the true, I'm the true way. I'm the true mercy seat. Everything, everything in this passage is pointing to Jesus, the true and better. Um, a great man who I love dearly told me once, like, Cody, if you read the Bible and on one page you don't see Jesus, you need to stop and go back and read it again. That's what we see in our passage in Exodus 40. This is all pointing to King Jesus, the truer and better temple, the truer and better tabernacle. You say, how could this be? Well, look what Jesus did. What's the way back into the presence of God? You got to go under the sword. You got to go under the sword. Someone has to take the sword. And what is the gospel? Jesus on the cross died in our place. He took the sword for us. The way that we could never get to him. We're, we're not holy He's utterly different than us. But Jesus says, I'm perfect. I live the life that you should have lived. I'll die the death that you should have died. And whenever you see that, that's the glory of God. The tension between the goodness of God, the goodness of God where he will never let sin go unpunished. He died in your place, Christian. And at the same time, the goodness of God who says, I want to dwell with them. They are mine. I created them to enjoy me and delight in me forever and ever and ever. You know what that means? You and I were so bad that Jesus had to die. But Jesus is so good that he was delighted to die for you. He was delighted. He says, they're mine. I want to dwell with them. This was not cosmic child abuse. Do you understand? This wasn't God sending his son down to, to settle a debt and just say, go die on a cross. No, Jesus willingly died in your place. 
He willingly died in your place. And you know what happened? You know what happened whenever he did? Whenever he went under the sword for you? Matthew and Mark says so plainly, just immediately after Jesus' death, and the veil was ripped from top to bottom, as if someone from heaven just goes, don't need that anymore. Why? Because it was all pointing to him. He's the truer and better temple. He's the truer and better tabernacle. He is the way. We don't have to go into the Holy of Holies. We don't need a representative to go into the Holy of Holies on behalf of our sin. Jesus died once for all. He died once for all. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9 says, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The presence of God. The presence of God can be experienced through faith that Jesus did what you and I couldn't. What does this mean? Let's get some practical steps. What does this mean? First off, the only way into this relationship is through grace. It's only through grace, through faith. Um, if you're trying to get in in any other way, if you think, I need to clean up my life before I go- jump into Christianity, you don't understand it. Not even in the slightest. Uh, th- what, what does Exodus show us? That they were already saved from the Red Sea crossing in, in Exodus chapter 14. And then in Exodus chapter 20, he gave them the law. He, he didn't give them the law and then say, if you obey it, I will, I will maybe save you from the Egyptians. No, he saved them through free grace. And then he said, and this is what I like, and this is what I enjoy. And if we want to have mutual relationship, this is how we're going to interact with each other. That's totally different. That's totally different than any other religion in the world. It is. It is. All other religions, if you obey well enough, then maybe God will accept you. Christianity turns out and said, you are accepted, therefore obey. Therefore live for his glory. Delight and enjoy him because you're already accepted. You're already accepted in Christ. So you have to enter in through a grace-based relationship with him. Another thing is you have to recognize, Christian, look at me. You need to recognize that you have resources in this life to treasure and delight in God. You have resources in this life to treasure and delight in God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, I think, crushes the spirit of our age right now. This is what it says. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Listen, listen, Christian. The enemy is here to steal, kill, and destroy. And even if you're in Christ, he is trying to steal from you. He is trying to destroy your faith. He is trying to wreck you. He's trying to absolutely render you ineffective for Jesus. He can't snatch your soul away, but listen, he wants to render you completely ineffective for his glory. He doesn't want you to get anywhere near. He wants to create barriers. He wants to instigate those barriers that we were talking about between you and God. And I, I have a couple of questions for us that I want us to kind of identify. Because you see three things. The desires of the flesh, I think is the spirit of this age. The desires of the eyes and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh, what do I mean by that? I answer this question in your heart. What makes you comfortable 
What makes you comfortable in this life? Is it knowing that all, all of your hope is found in Christ and Christ alone? Is it in your communion with God? Or is it something, is it Netflix? Is it your phone? See how these things are like taskmasters saying, come back, serve me. Don't serve him, the one that you were made for. Serve me. Give, him, give your heart's attention and affection to this little screen or this big screen if TV's your thing or if movies your thing or if computers your thing. This is a taskmaster. What makes you comfortable? What makes you comfortable? That, that is probably the desires of the flesh coming to steal, kill, and destroy your life. Like, Cody, that's intense. Yes, it is intense, but I think it's true. Next question. Desires of the, desires of the eyes. How, how do you identify what the desires of your eyes are? What gets you excited? Redeemer, what gets you excited? That's most likely the thing that is stealing from you, killing you, and destroying you. If it is not found in Christ and Christ alone, remember the whole point of the tabernacle is to help us understand, to help us understand that you're still in slavery until you're worshiping. And we will find things worthy in lesser things. What gets you excited? March Madness? Gambling, internet images, traveling, TikTok, Instagram. What gets you excited? Don't you think that this life is so much more than these lesser things? And listen, I'm not, thanks for being here. I'm preaching to myself. So just thank you for listening. So don't think I'm sitting here on a high horse or anything. I, God, change my heart. These things are like paintings. Remember baby bottle pops? Lick the pop, dip it, and shake it. All right, and then lick it again. All right, it's just those. These are the things that we put in our mouth, and we just say, oh, I guess this is what life is about. No. There's this treasure of nourishment as we get closer and closer to God. Don't put up these barriers. Put them away. We have great tools. We have great tools in our cultural moment. Use them as tools, not as God's. They're terrible gods. They're great tools. They're not for your comfort. They're not for your life. These things are stealing our humanity. Delight and treasure Christ. Look what he's done. He's made the way. He's the truer and better tabernacle. Last, the pride of life. What makes you feel superior? What makes you feel superior? That's how you find what the pride of life is. Is it your fitness? Is it your health goals? Is it your bank account? Is it your work ethic? Is it your family life? Is it being viral on TikTok? Sorry, Davis. What makes you feel superior? Listen, our boast at Redeemer Church is Christ and Christ alone. Let's treasure and delight in him. Let's see him for who he truly is. The Holy Spirit gives us resources to embrace all of these things. Romans 12, 2, delight, delight. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is done through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. 
You say, Cody, I've tried. I've done it, and I fail over and over and over again. Don't you recognize that that is not That is not the comforting voice of the Lord. That's the one that wants to steal your joy, kill kill your testimony, and destroy your Christian walk. Don't you understand that? That you have resources? That Jesus is not just God who we're supposed to worship? Jesus is the way. Bring it to remembrance all things that Christ has done for you. Every single time you say, I I, I can't do it. I I don't have the self-discipline to walk into the spiritual disciplines. That is such a lie from the enemy. Recognize it. This is why we need to be a family. We have to call out in each other. No, you're believing lies. God wants us to enjoy him, to delight in him. Your life is so valuable. I want to turn Wichita Falls upside down. And I don't care if he does it through this church. I want to see Christ be be lifted high. But I want your lives to be seen that you can delight and treasure Christ. Your social media doesn't matter. Your phones don't matter. They don't. The glory of God is what you're made for. Church, look at me. I love you. I love you. Let's walk in this. Let's call each other to it. Let's cry out to God for his spirit to transform the brokenness of our heart, the lies of the enemy, and say, no, the same power that rose Christ from the dead lives in us. Every single day, I can enjoy him. I can pursue him. We need this. It's what we are made for. It's what we were made for. Do you see it? Do you see it? Being a Christian is beholding the glory of God, seeing that he is both just and the justifier of your sins. The tension, the tension of the beauty of God is found in his glory of how he saves you and how he delights in you that you were so bad that he had to die, but yet you are so loved that he was glad to die. This is the gospel. I want you to behold it. And when you do, day by day, work that deep into your heart, it'll change. It'll change you, step by step. But listen, we need each other. I need you praying for me. You need me praying for you. We need each other. Can we agree? Can we agree as we shut this down that by God's grace, we will pursue him imperfectly as it may from this point on? Let's pursue him and let's call each other to continual pursuit of him. He's the way. He's the lampstand. He's the living water that flows out of the new temple, it's all pointing to him. Let's pray.